So, as I said, we're just going to jump in. Erek epaim. Now, if you speak a Semitic language, you're like, stop, please, don't try and pronounce that anymore. But uh, I do my best, okay, with, with the Hebrew. So the word that we're looking at, the phrase that we're looking at, slow to anger. It's a word picture. Can you guys think of any, before we get into this, so it's, it's a word picture. I think this is like so fun, okay? Because these tend to be very difficult to translate into other languages, right? If you speak more than one language, you know this is true. You have word pictures in your native language that do not translate to English, right? Um, or, you know, I've experienced this going to Germany. Um, you know, you use a word picture in, German, you know, in Germany and people look at you like you're insane because it doesn't translate, right? So can you think of any good, uh, any good word pictures that we use uh, in, in English? To describe something. So here, here's the thing. When I say slow to anger, the Hebrew doesn't say slow to anger at all. That's not in there. It's not in the text. It doesn't say slow to anger. It means slow to anger, but it doesn't say slow to anger. It means long in the nostrils. That's the literal. You want to read the Hebrew, it means long in the nostrils. Now, there's a reason they translate it slow to anger, because we hear long in the nostrils and we go, what? Like, I don't understand that at all. But if you're a Hebrew person, 2,500 years ago, 3,000 years ago, and you hear that God is long in the nostrils, you go, wow, that's amazing. That's powerful stuff. Right? Okay, so I was like thinking about these. And I, and I noticed it actually the other, the other week, like I was taking Sam home, and I said something to him about like finding your feet. Now, thankfully, Sam has been here long enough. He had kind of heard that before, but it was one of those, I caught myself, and I was like, that may not make sense to him, like finding your feet, you know? But right, when we hear it, it makes total sense, right? Finding your feet. Okay, can you think of anything else? Like, can you, can you think of one? Hang on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so one of my, my wife's friends uh, said, wrote Brill in a text uh, to me when we were trying to all find each other. And it bothered me for the longest time. I couldn't figure out what Brill meant. And I realized it was a hyphenation of brilliant. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's these different things that like, yeah, they don't translate well um, into other languages. One that, one that Sam told me where, from where he's from, that's, that is one, is, uh, oh, now, okay, hold on. Let me think here. It was, uh, painting is not a party. If you were to translate it into English literally, it's painting is not a party. And I was like, painting is not a party. What does that mean, Sam? And he was like, well, like, you know, it means like when you do a job, do the best of your ability. Like, you know, work hard, do it well. Like, it's not a party. You know, painting's not a party. And I'm like, you know, so like we hear that and we're kind of like, well, I don't know, you know? Or I was like even thinking of more like, um, uh, things like um, sticky fingers. Like somebody's got sticky fingers. Like what does that mean? Like, you know, they, they're thief. <laughs> they steal stuff, right? But does that really make a, I mean, if you really sit and think about it, it makes sense. Or like, do you know what? I could tell you and be completely truthful. I have two left feet. Do I have two left feet? No, I'm wearing the right and the left shoe, but I can't dance. Save my life, can't dance. You know, like, or at least, uh, unless I'm at a wedding reception, then there's, uh, something comes over me. Um, no, like, I, like, but does it, you know, again, when you sit and think about it, like, okay, it starts to make, make some sense. Or, um, like, my hands are tied. 
right? So we have these phrases, and this is what I'm saying. We have these phrases. So here's, this is just for free. There's no such thing as a literal translation of the Bible. It's all on a scale, <laughs> right? Because I looked it up. There is no version of the, in the English, in the Bible, that translates that long in the nostrils. Because we know it doesn't make sense to us. Unless, you know, like, it just, it's one of those, so if you look in the translations, it's slow to anger, or uh, it's long-suffering, and all of those are right. So let's, let's sit for a moment with this, with this metaphor. Long in the nostrils, all right? And this is why I, I just, I had to go, I had to go here, because this is like so much fun. So when you think about it, at least it's fun to me, whatever. Um, so there we go. Uh, so when you think about it, like, when you're angry, and you don't want to lose your cool, what do you do? When you want to be patient, somebody's testing your patience. What do we, what do we tend to do? And I, I've told my kids to do this too. Take a deep breath. Right? We've all been there. We've all done that at some point in our lives, right? Somebody's made us really, like somebody's doing something to push every single button and we just kind of go, be an adult. You know? So, if our, you know, so then you think about it. God, God's nostrils are incredibly long. You know, like his nostrils make Pinocchio look like nothing. You know, like he can breathe in for a really long time, right? That's the word picture here. His nostrils are super long. His breath just keeps going and going and going when he's frustrated. He doesn't lose his cool. He doesn't snap. He takes a deep breath. God is patient. God is long in the nostrils. All right, so you can sit, like, again, I hope that's, like, stuck with you forever because it's stuck with me, and I love it. I don't know. Anyway, um, so, yeah, uh, every single translation of the Bible is going to come to places where you have word pictures like this, and they may, not, they may choose not to use that, but to actually give you the meaning underneath the word picture. So that's what I meant by, like, there's no such thing as a, a completely literal translation of the Bible because, again, you're dealing with language, and when you're coming from one language to another, you have to make some decisions about how you're going to do things. Um, now, I, may, I probably shouldn't have even mentioned that. But uh, anyway, you can make... Uh, so here's the thing. Here's the idea. The big idea this morning is this. You can make God mad. You can make God mad. But you've got to work at it. You've got to really want to. You've got to work at it. You can make God mad, but you have to work at it. All right, and so we're going to unpack that. Because as I said in the beginning, I think each of us has a conception of, of God. And if you grew up in a certain style of church, a certain kind of church, your conception of God may be that he is very angry. Right? And if you step out of line, if you do the wrong thing, God is just waiting with the back of his hand. Like, he's almost excited, like, to give you a thump. Right? Like, some of us, some people have grown up in that where it's like God is mean, God is vindictive almost, and he's just waiting for you to screw up. Right? No, that's an extreme. But then maybe some of us have grown up, um, because we live in the modern secular West, maybe many of us have grown up in an idea, with an idea of God that he is, you know, like the permissive parent. You know what? Hey, whatever you want to do, that's fine. I'm cool. I just want to be your buddy. Right? You know, like, 
maybe maybe you've known that parent, you know, that like let the, you know, you had a friend whose parents just kind of let them do whatever they wanted, you know, and like maybe like we kind of see God in that way, like, hey, God doesn't really care what you do as long as you're happy. Like he just wants to be your friend, put his arm around you, say, you know, maybe rub a little bit on the top of your head, you know, like it's that kind of thing, like, ah, you know, do what you want. And I think when we get to this passage, slow to anger, it shows the problems with both ends of these spectrums. God is not waiting and ready to hit you upside the head and to punish you. But equally, God is not just putting his arm around you and going, hey, whatever you want to do, buddy, that's fine. You know, like, like that. Both of those have problems. And so let's start out this morning unpacking this passage with this. We're going to look at God is slow to anger. This one is especially for those of you who grew up with an idea that God was very angry. And I think that's many of us. Many of us grew up with that idea. God is a very angry God. Or even there, the character that we see often of God from a lot of people is they just find some Old Testament passages and go, see, look, God's a mean guy. He's awful. He's terrible. He's just waiting to to punish people. He's disgusting. He's awful. But that's not how he reveals himself. Right? When God speaks and says, here's who I am, he says he is merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. Right? Like, that's, that's, you probably didn't sing it. Um, but that's, yeah, definitely not with that tune. But, um, but that's how God reveals himself. Slow to anger. Now, we have to back up for a moment and realize how radical that is. Because there weren't other religions at the time that were saying that about God. And I'm not so sure there are any other religions really around today that, hold, that say that. God is angry. Whoever this God is, he's angry, and we better make him happy. And right, when you, take, when you look at the ancient world that was filled with all kinds of deities, from, from Molech to Ashtoreth, from Aphrodite to you know, Bacchus, These gods needed to be appeased. They were angry, just waiting to strike you with a bolt of lightning as you were sailing on your ship if you didn't make them happy. These gods were were vindictive. And yet, in and amongst that, God comes, Yahweh reveals himself as slow to anger. He's not ready to punish you at at a moment's notice. Rather, God is patient. And in fact, when you go, um, when you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, something called the Septuagint, uh, it it would have been uh, a Bible around at Jesus' time of the Old Testament, they translate the word as uh, as patience. So it's um, makrothymos, for those of you who who really want to dive into the Greek, but it means patient. God is patient. And this is why long-suffering or slow to anger are really good uh, terms for that word. Uh, So God is patient. right? He is not ready to just strike at any whim like the other gods who must always be appeased with different sacrifices. 
right? You start off, first I bring this animal. If he's not happy with that, then I'll bring this animal. And if he's not, you know, and by the end, you've got like Molech where you're sacrificing children just to make him happy, right? Um, even some of the ancient Greek myths, you're sacrificing children to appease the gods and to make them happy. Get the wind to blow. Whatever you need, whatever you want. You've got to manipulate God, make him happy enough that he'll give you what you want. God says, that's not who I am. That is not who I am. I am slow to anger. And you say, oh, we've gotten past all of that. What I find interesting is that when we start talking about economics in our world, it starts using the language of like, we need to appease the market or assuage the market. All these kinds of things like, you better watch out. If we don't keep spending, then this is going to happen and everything's gonna come crumbling down. And it almost starts to sound like, now again, I'm not against like, free market or something like I'm not a communist, I'm not here like, you know, I'm not, I'm just saying, be careful because we start to use language that starts to sound an awful lot like, I better make my sacrifices or the God is going to punish me, right? And so I think like, I don't know, and again, that's one example, we could come up with a lot more, okay? That one's just kind of an easy one to pick on. Um, there's plenty of other ones that, that we could point to, but I think it was just something that's interesting, like, as you know, people are talking about the economy beginning to boom again. This is why I just kind of noticed that. Like, people are talking about all the spending and all this kind of stuff and how, you know, and like, um, but I think we have to be careful in our day as well. But maybe this is how you've always viewed God. He's just waiting to get you. He's always angry. And this will really affect the way that we understand our relationship to God. And you're like, yeah, <laughs> like obviously, if that's how you view God, then you're gonna have a hard time when Jesus teaches us to pray our Father. <laughs> or maybe you've had a really bad parent. And so when like, you kind of read that into it, you know, like, like we come to this with, with baggage. Maybe for you, God seems like the parent who we constantly tried to please but were never able to satisfy. Or maybe for you, he seems like the boss that's always angry and your job is never good enough. Or the spouse that is always angry and yelling. And that ends up being how we kind of view God. But that, again, is not how God reveals himself. I just want to say it one more time, because I want you to hear this, that when God reveals himself, when he reveals his character, he says that he is compassionate, that he is merciful, that he is slow to anger. Those are the very first words that God uses to describe himself here at Exodus chapter 34. And so I think we've got to let that seep into our very being, that this is who God is. He's not the vindictive dad in the sky just hoping you'll fail. He is the good father. He's not wanting to just fly off the handle, another word picture there, uh, and punish you. Now, I think it's interesting because, again, often it gets leveled that, you know, God is... Uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe you've never heard that. I don't, at least for me, I've heard this before. You know, like that God is just mean and vindictive and just ready to punish. But here's the thing I find interesting. Do you know one of the biggest problems that people in the Old Testament have with God? 
is that he was slow to anger. That he was too patient. That he didn't punish as quickly as they felt he should punish. Now, obviously not punishing them, but punishing other people as quickly as he felt like they should. God, you are too patient. And you know what? Luke referenced uh, Jonah last week. And that's an interesting story. Because normally, you know, if you remember back to our series on Jonah, then you remember, normally most stories, uh, when they repeat Jonah, they repeat the story, retell the story of Jonah, they stop at chapter 3. And for good reason. Because chapter 4, Jonah gets really mad at God and yells at him. Right? When you go to Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, it says, so right, if we remember the story of Jonah, right? So Jonah has uh, been told by God, go to Nineveh, tell them you need to change your ways or God's going to destroy the city. And Jonah runs away because he doesn't want to do it, right? Okay? And then eventually, you know, he's in a whale, he gets thrown up, he goes, he finally says, okay, I'm going to go to Nineveh. He goes, he preaches the bare minimum sermon, he just says, look, God's mad at you, he's going to kill you. Like, and that's kind of about it. That's like basically it. It's like four, I think it's like four words in the Hebrew or something like that. Like, um, right? But what happens? The entire city of Nineveh goes, oh no! Oh, we're sorry. We're terribly sorry. We're going to change our ways. Oh my goodness, right? And so here we have the whole city then of Nineveh. It's like insane. This whole city just goes, that's it. Okay, even the animals are like in sackcloth and ashes and repenting. And like, and Jonah says, this change of plans greatly upset Jonah and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? Now get this. This is where things get, get funny, maybe. I don't know, really sad. That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew, I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. Now that sounds familiar. He's repeating Exodus 34, 6 back to God and said, I knew you would do this. Right? He's not angry because God is a mad, angry, vindictive God. He's angry because God isn't a mad, vindictive, angry God who's ready to punish the Ninevites. Now, we could go into context there. They were not nice people. They literally like flayed people. Like they've written about that. Like they actually like basically stapled a king's skin up to the up to a wall. I mean, like they're not good people. Like they're awful people. There's actually one where where uh, one tablet where they talk about like how the king of Nineveh actually uh, basically puts a dog chain through a guy's uh, chin, the king's chin, drags him around like a dog, and then actually puts him in a kennel. Like, like these are the people we're dealing with, right? So you can understand why Jonah's mad, but he kind of goes like, God, I knew you would do this. These people are awful. You should have punished them, and now you're not, and I'm mad, right? And so he says, Lord, I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. Just kill me now. Do you see what I'm saying? Their problem is not that God is an angry God. It's the opposite. Jonah's problem has nothing to do with God being angry. It has everything to do with God being patient, slow to anger. And he allows the people in Nineveh a chance to repent. And so we find Jonah angry. Jesus, interestingly, again, picks up on this theme of God's patience. Now, he doesn't get, you know, he's not angry because... You know, he's merciful. Instead, he tells this story. Jesus tells a parable. Matthew chapter 18. I forgot I actually had the Jonah passage on the screen. But I have Matthew 18, 20 27 on the screen here. Right? Therefore, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. 
So get this, the kingdom of God is like. Now, God reveals himself in Exodus 34 as a God who is slow to anger, right? Or remember, in the Greek, that word is patience, right? Patience. So, so listen for this. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. Obviously, it doesn't say millions of dollars there. That's again, it's telling you it's a huge amount of money, okay? Um, yeah, Jesus did not use the dollar. Um, millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, his children, and everything he owed to pay the debt. Now, if we stop there, right, people will be like, oh, see, look what God is like. Evil, mean, vindictive. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me, and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. This is God's character, slow to anger, patient, merciful, compassionate. When the man comes and asks, please be slow to anger, be patient with me, the master doesn't just say, all right, I'll give you some more time to pay. He actually releases the debt. This is a story that Jesus tells. He says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. Over and over, then we see Jesus in his life patiently, patiently calling the religious leaders and others to stop using their religious power to stop taking advantage of people using that religious power that has been given to them, but instead to compassionately and mercifully, mercifully forgive and to embrace the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus did over and over throughout his ministry. One of the things that I find striking, Alyssa and I are reading through the Gospel of Mark now over and over. One of the things that I find striking is how patient Jesus is with the people who have it out for him. Over and over, he is slow to anger. They come to him trying to trap him. And what does he do? He answers their questions. He's patient with them. He desires for them to relent, to repent, to turn, to go towards the kingdom of God. Now, eventually, Jesus is going to clear the temple, right? And that seems like a really rash thing for him to do, except when you read the Gospels, you realize like he's been to the temple over and 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 over. He's seen them doing this over and over. It's calculated. It's deliberate. Jesus' anger is not rash and wild, but calculated and deliberate. And so we find that God is slow to anger and merciful and compassionate, but... God is slow to anger. God does get angry. You know, there are passages in the Old Testament where God is very angry. There are passages in the New Testament where we find Jesus very angry. But what I do think is that God does get angry. But his anger, I'd say, is much more rare in the Bible than his compassion and his mercy. And I think this idea that God gets angry goes against our modern Western view 
of God, as I talked about earlier. But I think we need to be careful not to project human acts of anger onto God. When we start saying, like, God gets angry, right? We immediately begin to project human acts of anger onto God. But what's the reality of, of, if you're being honest, or at least if I'm being honest, most of my anger is reactionary. Most of my anger is not thought through. Most of my anger is rash. Most of my anger I need to apologize for later. Maybe it's the same for you. Because most of my anger, and I don't know if this is true for you guys, I don't know what you're, most of my anger is often about pride, hurt pride. Much of my anger, I think, comes from, yeah, probably hurt pride more than anything. Sometimes maybe envy. I don't know what it is for you guys. What it is that makes you guys fly off the handle. Disrespect. Again, I think that, like I said, it comes down to pride. Somebody hurts me, I become angry. My ego has, you know, been stepped on a little bit or something. And that's not good. Like, I'm not up here saying, like, well, isn't that, you know, that's fine. No, it's not. But God's anger is not like that. God's anger is not like that. He does not, he's not rash, but he is patient. Right? And so we need to be careful not to project our ideas of anger onto God. God does not lose his cool. I lose my cool sometimes. God does not lose his cool. We get another word picture. Oh. <laughs> I realize, you don't realize how much you talk in word pictures until you start like, doing a sermon where you talk about a word picture. And then, like, you know. Um, but yeah, God's anger does not come from selfishness or envy, God's anger comes from his love. Now, I think there are times in our lives where even you and I experience that same thing. Our anger comes out from our love for somebody, right? And so many of us think like, oh, I can't, I can't believe in a God of wrath or a God who gets angry. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. There are things that are worth being angry about, right? I mean, it's one of those, I think, I was thinking about this. You know, everything that's happening right now, all that was, or at least all that was happening with the Ashley Murphy murder recently, there were a lot of people angry. And rightfully so. Like, can you not feel, like, it's not when you hear about that, that a woman was literally murdered in broad daylight for no reason? She had done nothing wrong. She was walking down a canal and some guy came out of nowhere at 4.30 in the afternoon? If that doesn't make you angry, if that doesn't boil your blood, like, it should. That is injustice. And it should make us angry. And if the God that you believe in never gets angry about anything, like, that's, to me, that's way more disgusting. The God that just goes, ah, who cares? It's fine. No big deal. It is a big deal. And so I think when we start talking about this idea that God has wrath, his wrath, God's, there is not an attribute of God that is wrath. Okay? The Bible never says that one of God's attributes is wrath. But love is, and we'll talk about that next week. And I think that wrath, God's wrath is connected. His anger is connected to his love. 
Okay, as we go through each one of these things uh, in Exodus 34, 6, I think you need to see it more like, what is it, a Venn diagram? Is that where like, they like cross over each other, like right, Venn diagram? Like see it more like that. All of these things are interconnected with one another, right? God is slow to anger, but he does get angry. He does have wrath, and it's because he loves and because he is compassionate and merciful that evil in the world makes him angry. And so it's one of those, like you and I, if, like we get angry over things over injustice, Right? We find ourselves going like, how could this happen? And so does God. God gets angry about things. But his anger comes from his love. And this is not like the talk of like an abusive spouse. It's like, you know, oh, I love you. That's why, you know, sorry I hit you. I love you. You know, like it's not, not like that. But like a really good dad or a really good mom sometimes disciplines their children because they love them. Sometimes feels anger towards their children because they love them. <laughs> right? Like there are times where I've been really angry at, at my kids. There was one time in particular, like I was feeling like all kinds of mixed emotion because it looked like my kid was going to run out in the street. You know, and you're like, you, know, you find yourself being like, what are you doing? You know, like, you're like, don't do that. You know, like an anger, like, wolves up and you're like, don't do that. But it's like, it's more than that. It's a love that's pouring out too. It's going like, don't. You could have died. And, you know, it's like a whole mix of emotion, you know, panic, you know, everything. But like, but yeah, I think it's one of those, like, God's anger comes through his love. Because he is slow to anger, his it means it's thought out, it's measured, and correctly proportioned to the offense. It's, it's the right emotional response. And I think that's important to recognize. And so anyway, I, I have this little, little chart. We're just gonna go through it really quick. This is another like, this is like one of those like teaching moments or whatever. Um, I, I, I got it from the book. I recommended two weeks ago, God has a name, John Mark Comer. That's what this series is based on. So I stole his chart. And I put it up here, right? So this is a way to think about God's wrath, okay? If this is like a problem for you, if this is something like you deal with, here's what you need to understand. The two main ways that we find God's wrath in the Bible are first in present passive and second in active future. And you're like, I don't know what that means. What are you talking about? Okay, here's, here's what I'm saying, right? So most often in the Bible, we find that when God does something in the here and now, when he gets angry, it's often passive. In other words, God releases his protection and lets you suffer the consequences for your actions. And then we read about, like, say, you know, you go to the book of Revelation, places like that, right? God's anger is active future, where it's like, I'm going to do something about this. They will not get away with this. I will punish the wicked, right? Okay? So I think it's important we see those two things. God, like, God's anger is often... Now, once in a while, sometimes... It is active present, which means he does something about it right there, right now, right? You think about Ananias and Sapphira, if you were with us when we went through Acts, okay, right? There are moments where God just deals with it right then and there, okay? And there are moments with like future passive, like, you know, we're all going to die, um, you know, or things like, you know, like things like that, um, right? Um, but most often it is present passive or active future. Okay, and maybe that, I don't know whether that's helpful um, to you or not, uh, but like, let's, let's go back to uh, the story of, of Nineveh. And maybe this will help us to see how oftentimes 
God's wrath works. Okay, if we go to Nahum chapter 1, we find Nineveh again in the story. So this is about 150 years after Jonah, maybe 200 years after Jonah, something like that. And the prophet Nahum speaks this word about Nineveh. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. That's a name. Um, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Do you remember how I told you like the Ninevites weren't nice people? And then they had this moment where they were like, we're sorry, we were like really screwed up. Well, they went right back to flaying people and you know, the things that they did, the awful things that they did. Um, there's another account where you know, they're stacking heads and like, you know, I mean, all kinds of things that you just think like, people shouldn't do that, right? You name it, they were doing it. And God waited 150 years before he said, enough. I've been patient. I gave you a chance. Enough. And so God punishes the people of, of Nineveh. And actually, then it goes on to say that Babylon is going to come and they're going to destroy Nineveh. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. Would they have done it anyway? Yeah, probably. They were a rising power, yeah, most likely. But it seems like God said, that's it. I'm just going to let it happen. I'm not going to step in. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to let it happen. And oftentimes in our life, we come to the book of Romans, right? And it says over and over in Romans chapter 1, it's a repeated phrase, God gave them up. Guys, one of the worst things that God could do is let us experience the consequences for our actions. That's present passive wrath. Okay? So I hope, again, we're going to fly through that because... I was going to talk. If you want to talk more about this later, we can talk more about this later. That's like, like let's leave it at that. I realize like I'm bringing up like a, a you know, a truckload of stuff there. Um, and then I'm just going to be like, next slide. Um, but let's go back then to Matthew as we start to kind of wrap, wrap this up. Okay. I said we find in the Bible that God's anger is unusual and compassion, mercy, and patience are the norm. And that God's anger, just like in the story there with Nineveh, is preceded by his great, abundant patience. And so here's the thing. God then expects us to be patient, to be slow to anger. He expects us to be like that, right? Exodus 34, 6 and 7 tells us about who God is, but we are to be like God, right? We are to be holy as God is holy, or as Jesus says, we are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In in Matthew chapter 5, all right, so there's this idea then that says, this is who we should be as well, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger. And this parable that Jesus tells about what the kingdom of God is like, he goes on to say there in Matthew chapter 18, but when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by, or euro, I guess we could insert there. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged him for a little more time. Catch this. What does he ask? Be patient with me. Be patient with me. Be slow to anger with me, and I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. 
When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and said, you, uh, sorry, they went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man who had been forgiven and said, you evil servant, I forgave you a tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. Now, obviously, this is a story, but I think it gets the point across, right? God expects us to be slow to anger, to be patient with others as God has been patient with us. That we are to forgive because we have been forgiven. We are to show mercy because we have received mercy. We are to be patient because God has been patient. Yet the story of our lives, I think, is that often we're the guy in this parable. So what do we do? Right? I mean, like, I don't know about you guys. I mean, do you ever get angry when you shouldn't? Do you ever treat people sometimes the way you shouldn't? Not going to answer for you, but I could probably answer for you. <laughs> so now what? Do we just try harder? Maybe that's it. We just need to try a little bit harder. I'm going to make my New Year's resolution this year, right? This year I'm going to do it. I'm going to be more patient. I'm going to be more merciful. Well, great. I commend you for that. Tell me at the end of the year how it went, right? And you might be like, well, I'm a little bit more merciful, maybe. Like, I really tried. Okay, great. I don't think trying harder is really going to help all that much. It might make us a little more patient, but not as patient as Jesus wants us to be. <laughs> we need to come back to the gospel, which says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus came and was slow to anger, yet the people who he came to save were anything but slow to anger. As soon as he made them mad, they sought to kill him. They plotted to kill him and they murdered him. And you and I are often at war with Christ as well. Through the way we live our lives. The things that we choose to do, the things that we choose to say, the way that we act. Now, I think you're here because like me, you go, I don't want to be at war with God. Right? And I hope every one of us then has said, God... I'm sorry, I don't want to be at war with you. I want to be a part of your kingdom and receive the gift of salvation that Jesus offers that through his death and resurrection, though he was murdered by the people, he came to save. He came to rescue you and me from our own self-destruction and to bring us into his kingdom. But not just to be into his kingdom and be like, isn't that wonderful? Like, who cares? I don't need to change. I am who I am. But so that God could begin to make us who we were created to be, like him. Compassionate and merciful, slow to anger, but it starts with recognizing that Jesus came to show mercy and through his death and resurrection, he brings life and that now we live from that life. And this is really important. We live from that life and we learn to be like God, to be slow to anger, to be patient. And it starts with knowing Jesus. It starts with knowing Jesus. As we come to know Jesus, we experience the patience of God more and more in our lives. We experience God's slowness to anger, his long nostrils more and more. Right? I don't know about you. Like, like 
are you guys, do you guys, as you get to know Jesus more and more, do you, do you feel that? Like, you feel that tension of going, like, I fail so often, and yet, as I read the Gospels, I, I do, I see that God is slow to anger. He is long in the nostrils, that his patience for me has been so great. And I think the more and more I experience God's patience, the more and more, I, I hope at least, that if you ask Alyssa or ask my kids, like, I'm becoming more like Jesus. That I'm more slow to anger, more full of love, more merciful. I'm learning from my master, from Jesus, how to be like him. And so while it's possible to work really hard and maybe be more patient, the level of patience that God's de- God desires, Paul says, is one of the fruit of the Spirit. Right? Galatians chapter 5, one of the fruit of the Spirit. And so it comes, Jesus says in John 15, from the vine. It comes from the vine. It can be cultivated for sure, but the fruit of the Spirit is produced by the vine. And so you and I, we need to live from the vine to receive our nourishment from Jesus, the vine, so that we bear the fruit of the Spirit. Again, all connected there too. It's not just like, oh, I have this one fruit and not, you know, no. They're all, again, Venn diagram here. They're all, they're all connected, right? And so we need to live from the vine. And it starts with knowing Jesus. So I want to encourage you to make that commitment and say, I want to know Jesus. I want to know Jesus and allow him to change it. I don't want to just like show up to church. I want to like, I want to know Jesus. I don't want to just go through the motions. I want to know who Jesus is. I want to experience that slow to anger, that abounding in love. I want to experience the compassion and the mercy and live from the vine. Now, we're done. All right, that's it. But we're coming to a time of communion. And that to me is one of the most important things that we do on a Sunday morning. Because it is there that we experience the grace, the forgiveness, the kindness of Jesus. That he is slow to anger. We experience that in communion. We come to the vine and we drink from the vine. Okay, I know it's Rabina, but stay with me here. We drink from the vine. There's probably no actual juice in that. Maybe a little bit. Okay. We drink from the vine. Right? We remember what Christ has done for us. We celebrate his patience. We celebrate his mercy and his compassion. And we confess our failure. We confess our failure to live as we were supposed to live. As God has called us to live. But in that, we renew our commitment to him and we remember God's faithful commitment to us. And we're going to talk about that next week because slow to, uh, abounding and steadfast love deals with the idea of commitment and God's commitment to you and me. And it's at communion that we experience that commitment and we recommit ourselves to knowing him, to knowing Jesus, to being like Jesus, and to doing what he did. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to take communion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your...